here in Colossians 1 in verses 21 to 23 for today. And I'm going to, just for the sake of context, I'm going to read from verses 13 to 23. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. More importantly, we thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we look at these words, and consider Him. Help us to grow in our knowledge of Him, our love for Him, our understanding of Him, our obedience to Him. And Lord, I pray that You would work through me, that my words would be Your words, and that Your words would go forth in precision and power to impact the hearts of Your people for Your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we now come to the end of this section in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1 and verses 13 to 23, and we will be looking specifically at verses 21 to 23 in the message for this morning, which I have entitled, Glorious Christ, Part 5, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as I just said, we are at the end of this section in Paul's letter, um, throughout which he has been exalting the glories of Jesus Christ as he explains to the Colossians the attributes of Christ. And, and, and he does so by showing us the glories of Christ in this section from different perspectives and vantage points. And it's, it's almost as if we're viewing a, a, a magnificent diamond from different angles as the apostle turns it in front of our eyes to behold the beauty and splendor of it as he explains the true nature of Jesus Christ in these particular categories of his being, position, his titles, and his works. And, and, and I, as I have tried to show you that as well throughout this mini-series, which I have entitled Glorious Christ, um, through which we have 
seen Jesus Christ and the, the different uh, titles and his works and his being and his actions. We, we've seen him as the Redeemer King in verses 13 to 14, the God-man in verse 15, the Creator and Sustainer of all things in verses 16 to 17, the Head of the Church in verses 18 to 20, and now the Author and Perfecter of our faith in verses 21 to 23. What's interesting, though, is that as I have been studying for these messages and looking through different commentaries and, and books and, and uh, uh, looking at what other pastors and theologians had to say about this section in Paul's letter from 13 to 23, um, most have divided up this section into, of his letter into categories of relationships. Most have seen this section in terms of Christ's relationship to God the Father, and then his relationship to the creation, and his relationship to the church. More specifically, though, we see in verses 13 to 14, Christ's relationship to the kingdom as the Redeemer King. In verse 15, we see Christ's relationship to the Father as the God-man as He represents and manifests the Father to the world. And in verses 16 to 17, we see Christ's relationship to creation as the Creator and Sustainer of all things, the Creator Himself. In verses 18 to 20, we see Christ's relationship to the church as the head of the church. And now in verses 21 to 23, we see Christ's relationship to believers as the author and perfecter of our faith. And we see, in particular, his relationship to believers in these few verses from the perspectives of time and salvation. And you can see these, these uh, words that indicate time. And you who once, he has now, in order to, if indeed. And we see this, this relationship first in Christ's relationship to us prior to salvation, Christ's relationship to us in the process of salvation, third, relationship to us in the purpose of salvation, and fourth, Christ's relationship to us in the proving of our salvation. Or, in other words, as you looked at those, those few words which um, indicate time, we can see that it shows what he saved us from in the past, who we once were, how he saved us, either in the more recent past or present he has now, why he saved us in order to, meaning what he will do with us in the future, and then the evidence is that he has saved us, if indeed you continue. So we see in this passage four perspectives of the believer's relationship to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. And first, Paul shows the Colossians our relationship to Christ prior to salvation. Verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, this this verse says three things about our lives prior to salvation, or rather, 
three things about all those who are not saved. All those who are outside the kingdom. All those who are apart from Christ. First, they are aliens to Him and His kingdom. We have a lot of talk in our culture and in our politics about um, illegal aliens. Not extraterrestrial aliens, but aliens, those who are outside of our nation. Those who are not a part of our nation. And this is what Paul means in alienated. We were aliens to him and his kingdom. And this term alienated is, is found in a couple other places in the New Testament. Um, both of them are in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2 and, and chapter 4, and you can turn there if you want, um, but specifically in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 12, um, Paul speaks to the Ephesians about who they were um, in regards to uh, Israel and the kingdom of God and, and, and Jesus Christ. And he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This extends to all unbelievers. And particularly in this verse, he, he's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. That, that the Jews were um, God's chosen people though all the Jews had not come to faith, and even in the history of the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, we can see a lot of the Jews did not obey God, did not follow God, did not do what God commanded them to do. In fact, they did the exact opposite. They worshipped idols. But yet, they were God's chosen people, and they were the people through whom God gave His revelation of His Word through the prophets, they were um, the ones who, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, who had the covenants of promise. The promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The promises to David. Um, all the promises of salvation, the promises of God and His Word and who He was, they came through Israel. And we as most of us are Gentiles, and most people in the world are Gentiles, were alienated from His kingdom, from His people, from His Word, from His kingdom promises. And therefore, as it says, had no hope. We had no hope. No hope of understanding God, no hope of coming to God, no hope of being saved by God. We were aliens. And then, in Ephesians 4 and 17 to 18, it says this. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. And it's interesting because Paul's writing to Gentiles and yet he says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer live as you once lived. You must no longer act the way you acted or believe the things you believe. Because those people are alienated 
from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The ignorance of God. They're outside the kingdom. They're outside of God. They're aliens to Him and His kingdom. We were alienated from Him and particularly from the life of God that is in Him. This is who the Colossians were. This is who we were before Christ. This is who everyone is outside of Christ. So we were aliens to Him and His kingdom. Second, we were enemies of Him and His kingdom. As Paul says in verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1, uh, we are hostile in mind. There, there was hostile thoughts concerning God and His law, His words and His commandments and who He is and what He uh, demands of His people and all peoples. Prior to salvation in Christ, a person is outside of Christ. And if you are outside of Christ, you are outside of His kingdom. And therefore, you are an enemy of Him and His kingdom. There's no middle ground. There's no sitting on the fence. As Jesus said, He who does not gather with Me scatters. You're either with Me or you're against Me. There's no middle ground. Light or dark. And the MacArthur Study Bible has a on that verse in verse 21. And it says this, alienated, enemies. The Greek term for alienated means estranged, cut off, or separated. Before they were reconciled, all people were completely estranged from God. The Greek word for enemies can also be translated hateful. Unbelievers hate God and resent His holy standard because they love wicked works. As Jesus says in John chapter 3, you, you do not come to the light because your deeds are evil. And you do not want them to be exposed by the light. He goes on and he says, actually there is alienation from both sides since God hates all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5 5. So, prior to salvation, our relationship to Christ, that we were alienated from his, Him and His kingdom. We were hostile in mind towards Him. And third... We were breaking His laws and opposing His kingdom. Doing evil deeds, Paul writes in, at the end of verse 21, Colossians 1. And, and as we look at this in verse 21, there's, there's somewhat of a progression here. Because we were alienated from God and His kingdom, we were not His loyal subjects, nor His citizens, but His enemies. And because we were His enemies... We were hostile towards Him and His laws. And therefore, we broke His laws and opposed His kingdom in our position, our thoughts, and desires, and our behaviors. And some of you may be thinking, well, I, I, I know unbelievers, or I have unbelieving family members, or friends, or you might be outside of Christ yourself, and you may think, you know, those people aren't so bad. They're nice people. They're good citizens. They're... They're not particularly hostile. Well, you start preaching the gospel to them. You start exposing their sin. You start telling them their need for salvation and you will see some hostility rise up to the surface in their hearts and minds. Because there's no middle ground. And we don't rely 
on our experiences and our opinions to know what's true. We rely on the Word of God to know what is true about reality, about mankind, about God himself. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said this in commenting on the phrases in this verse. He says this, he says, It is always a tragedy to see men use their minds actively against God. Hostile purpose finds natural expression in evil deeds. Because naturally, we think of ourselves and our own sinful desires more than we think about anyone else or even about God. And, and sad to say, this can be true of many believers. That in our sinfulness, we want to be the captain of our own life. We want to do what we want to do whenever we want to do it, with whomever we want to do it, that would be living our best life now. That's, you look at all the advertisements in the world, they appeal to sinful flesh. And, and God says, no, you're, you're not your own creation or your own being. I created you for a specific purpose, for a specific reason. And I make those rules. I make those laws. And, and just saying that, that there is a creator that we are accountable to, that we must submit to, that can bristle against our, our sinful flesh. Because we really want to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. But we must remember that God is good. And because He's good, His laws are good. His ways are good. His wisdom is perfect. So naturally, it's in our best interest to submit to and follow Him. We see this. that Paul says that unbelievers are alienated. They're hostile in mind. And because of that, they do evil deeds. And, and, and this is why he says in Ephesians chapter 2, concerning unbelievers, concerning the, um, the Ephesian believers and their past life before Christ, he says this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's all-encompassing. Paul doesn't leave anyone out in creation. There, there's, there's no provision for, well, this, this other person is really nice. They're really good. Or this is a nice old lady. Or this is a sweet little child. They're innocent. No. He says, Everyone, every human being is born dead in their trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Satan. David says, in iniquity my mother conceived me. I was born in sin. This is, 
This is the doctrine of the, the fall of original sin that came through Adam. No one has escaped this except Jesus Christ himself. Jesus even called his own disciples evil. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He's he's instructing them on prayer. And he calls his disciples evil. That is the, the nature in which we are born into this world. We are evil. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are hostile in mind. We do evil deeds. We are alienated from the kingdom of God. And even as Paul says, we are following the prince of the power of the air because there's no middle ground. You're either in the kingdom or you're outside of it. On another occasion, someone asked Jesus. He comes up to him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus was saying two things right there in his response. He was was telling them that no one is good according to the standard of God's righteousness, of His standard of what is good and what is evil. No one passes that test. No one uh, passes that bar of goodness. And then He's also saying, you know, why do you call me good? In a sense that no one is good but God, ergo I am God. Because you came to me and you explained, you said yourself, good teacher. And this is where, from all these passages and many more, this is where we get the doctrine of total depravity from. That we, apart from Christ, are totally depraved. We are wicked. We are fallen in Adam. We are sinful. And that doesn't mean that that we can we are as sinful as we possibly can be but it means that the effects of the curse, the effects of sin, has um, encompassed the totality of our person. In our heart, in our mind, in our being, in our intentions, our desires. That even our our good deeds are polluted with self-righteousness. Paul said, "My, my best deeds are as if Filthy rags. Even uh, John Bunyan said that the greatest prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to damn the whole world. Because it was polluted with self-righteousness and pride and religiosity. Paul said, I'm not even able to examine myself. Because I can't even effectively say what is good and what is evil, what's polluted with self-righteousness or pride or religiosity. Jonathan Edwards says this concerning our salvation. He says this, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's, That's it. 
Because if you could somehow even inch your way towards God, then it's not a complete salvation. Because you did a little bit. This is the dark backdrop of our sinfulness against which Paul displays a gloriously bright of God's love in Romans chapter 5. And, and you can turn with me there, Romans chapter 5. And, and all of the book of Romans, all of the book of Romans is the most systematic, um, systematic exposition of the gospel. And not just the gospel in saving individuals, but in the gospel and in, in God's work of redemption throughout history and, and even into eternity. And the effects that the gospel has on a person. And in Romans chapter 5, after the first few chapters of Romans, Paul is laying out the sinfulness of mankind, both Jew and Greek, that no one is, is left out. And, and in Romans chapter 1, he has the rap sheet of all mankind. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he shifts to the love and the grace of God that saves us. And he says in Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 to 10, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And so, this is our relationship to Christ prior to salvation. We were aliens to Him in His kingdom. We were enemies to Him in His kingdom. We were breaking His laws and opposing His kingdom. But by His grace, He has brought us and reconciled us to Himself in His body of flesh by His death to bring us into His kingdom. And so second, now we go into our relationship to Christ in the process of salvation in verses 22 and following. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death because of the great love with which He loved us. Even while we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God saved us. But how exactly does He save us? And we use different terms within our Christian culture and church traditions to describe the process of salvation or how someone gets saved and becomes a, a Christian. And, and some of those terms are good. Some come directly from Scripture, and yet some are mis misleading. For instance, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. That sounds good, and most of that is right and true. Or accept Jesus into your heart which is a phrase I venture to say I have not seen anywhere in the Bible. You can search and see for yourselves. Be a Berean. Um, other terms which are found in the Bible, though, are 
Repent and believe the gospel. You must be born again. Or, or Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is, this is the moment. This is you know how we evangelize. We use these terms and there's other terms. And, and, and yes, sometimes in the heat of the moment when we're face to face with an unbeliever or we're explaining to a loved one the gospel, sometimes we slip up and sometimes we say things that aren't precise. And yet as we can look at our own testimony and people probably shared the gospel with us in ways which aren't, weren't exactly accurate or weren't exactly precise or gave us a track that wasn't exactly true to the Bible, but as many pastors and theologians have said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And sometimes He uses silly things to bring us to faith. But the truth of the matter is that we need to examine not only our faith in light of Scripture, but how someone comes to faith in light of Scripture. What actually happens? In MacArthur and Mayhew's um, systematic theology um, entitled Biblical Doctrine, it says this concerning the process of salvation. Let me say this. If a believer is asked when God saved him, there is a sense in which he ought to reply 2,000 years ago. And yet no one comes into this world saved. We are all brought forth in iniquity, Psalm 51, verse 5, dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, and enemies of God, Romans 5, 10, and 8, and 7 through 8. Though all the blessings of salvation were purchased once for all at the cross, the people of God do not enjoy the benefits of Christ's work until the Holy Spirit applies those blessings to individual believers, until they are born of the Spirit unto repentance and faith are united to Christ and are thereby justified, adopted, and set apart for a life of holiness and service to God. It is for this reason that we must distinguish between the accomplishment of redemption and the application of redemption. Jesus died once for all. For all those whom He would purchase as His people. That was a once-for-all sacrifice. And Jesus is a sufficient Savior. He is not a potential Savior. He, he, he did not make salvation possible. He actually saved. He, he, his cross, His sacrifice, His life, death, and burial, life, death, burial, and resurrection saves all for whom it was intended. When, when Jesus gave up His life right before, He said, it is finished. It's completed. He's a perfect Savior. But yet, people don't come to salvation until later on, just as that passage says. And, and there are several passages in the Bible which explain this process of salvation. And, and, and though they are all accurate, and we need to gather them up in our own study to understand the fuller view of salvation. And there is a sense that we will spend all eternity mining the depths of salvation. 
and what actually happened on the cross. As, as um, one theologian has said, all mysteries meet at the cross. All the attributes of God are put on full display in the cross of Jesus Christ. His love, His mercy, His grace, His justice, His wrath, His power, His providence, His wisdom, everything is put on full display in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we will spend all eternity mining the depths of the knowledge of what happened there and the implications and applications of it. But we can learn. We can learn in our time on earth through the pages of Scripture. And and there's one passage which really kind of condenses this. And and as as many have said, this is the the greatest chapter and the greatest book of all Scripture, and and that's Romans chapter 8. And and many, you can turn there and see Romans chapter 8 at the end of the chapter and, and and many have uh, many believers in the past have memorized this chapter and it's a good chapter to memorize Romans chapter 8 is full of such hope and and comfort and solace for us as we walk about this sin cursed world and in at the end of Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 to 30 Paul says this he says and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So This is, in an abbreviated fashion, laying out our relationship to Christ in the process of salvation. Our relationship to Christ in the process of salvation started in eternity past with with His foreknowledge. We were foreknown, we were predestined, and we were elected. And this term... uh, foreknown, whom he foreknew, foreknowledge means intimate knowledge. It's not just that he was peering down the corridors of time to see who would um, respond to the gospel, who would repent, who would believe, who would turn. No, this this term means intimate knowledge. This is a a similar term to what what God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Everything that there is about you. I knew you. Intimately. We were foreknown. We were predestined. Decreed or predetermined. Um, as God had predetermined. And this also bristles against our human sinful flesh. Because... We like to think that we're in control. That we are little sovereigns. That we make decisions. and We chart out the path of our life. But the older you get, the more you see God's providence in life and how He guided you through 
the trials and tribulations, the challenging, the challenges, the blessings, the relationships, the places. And this is true of salvation as well. That we who have come to faith, as the Bible clearly says, we're predestined. We were decreed or predetermined. As Acts 13.48 says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. At the apostles' preaching. As many as of the Gentiles who were appointed to be God's people believe in God's message. Even as uh, the Holy Spirit told Paul, um, I believe it was Corinth, or that he has many people in that city. Paul had yet to go preach the gospel there, but God says, I have many people there. So we are foreknown, we are predestined, and we are elected. We are chosen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, just a little bit over in Ephesians chapter 1. This is a, a, a great through which lays out this process of salvation from eternity past, of what God did in us and through us as sinners. And in Ephesians uh, 1 and verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And I know many people in your church traditions or your backgrounds, uh, predestination or election may um, may bring up some uh, bad thoughts. But this is the Word of God. And not only does the Word of God say predestination and adoption and election and foreknowledge, but as you look at this passage in Ephesians 1, ask yourself, who's doing the action? Grammatically. Does Paul say, oh, you, you reached out to God. You chose God. You came to God. No. He's saying God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world for a purpose. He predestined us. He decreed us. He called us. The, the process of salvation, our relationship to Christ in this process was that we were foreknown, we were predestined, we were elected, and then we were called and regenerated. We, we were called out of the world as the term for church, ecclesia in Greek literally means called out ones. Those who are called out of the world. And, and we can even, for many of us who have come to faith in our adult lives, we can 
see this point in time when we were not in the church, when we didn't care about God or Christ or salvation, and through a series of events, through a friend, through an acquaintance, through a stranger, someone presented the gospel to us, and it's as if we were plucked out of the world, we were called out of the world, and we were brought into the church. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, he's, he's speaking, and you can turn there, and it's interesting. One of, one of my favorite um, sections of um, the letter to the Corinthians, and in both letters, seeing how, how messed up the church was and, and how many um, corrections Paul had to give, and, and not even corrections, but warnings and admonishments to the Corinthians, and yet in the beginning of the letter, he calls them saints. So the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Even in their sin, they're saints. And in at the end of, of chapter 1, he says this in verses 26 to 29. He says, For or consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This... This should describe most of our testimonies. There was nothing great in any of us. Maybe externally, maybe some of us. And even Paul gives that provision. He says, he says not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Meaning there's probably a few of you that were powerful, a few of you that were of noble birth. Powerful meaning in your, your social standing. Some of you may have been upstanding citizens. Some of you may have been, um, according to the world, good people. But it wasn't many of you. Most of you were foolish. Most of you were not powerful. Most of you were not noble. Most of you were weak. Most of you were despised. But God chose you. And He called you. And because God chose you and He called you, He converted you. So we, we are called. There's an effectual calling of God upon our lives through the Holy Spirit. And we are regenerated. We are born again. God, He foreknows us. He predestines us. He elects us. And then He calls us. And then He regenerates us. He causes us to be born again through the Holy Spirit. As John says in, in 1 John 5, and verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Meaning that if you're a believer, you were born again. And that's the only way that that could have happened. 
You can only be a believer if you're born again. That's why years ago people used to preface Christian with, are you a born again Christian as opposed just to you know, some other type of Christian? No, you're either born again or you're not a Christian. And that new birth comes from the Spirit. Jesus said to, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him at night, and Jesus lays this out for him. In John chapter 3, he lays it out in the beginning of the chapter. Nicodemus comes to him at night because he's curious about Jesus, this man Jesus, and all the miracles he's doing, his teaching and everything. And Jesus, he asks him about, is the, is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus answers him in, in John chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Meaning, this is true. Write this down. Note this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus follows, and he's not being facetious here. He's not being sarcastic. Nicodemus is being literal. He's, he truly wants to know, and he responds to Jesus, and he says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus once again says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And he will go on, and he will chide Nicodemus for not knowing these things. Because he says, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Meaning, this was taught all along. Moses wrote, he says to the people, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You need to circumcise your heart. How do you circumcise your heart? You can't. God has to do it. Ezekiel says, and Ezekiel says, I will take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. A person can't do that. And yes, it's figurative language, but it is God must do a work. Later in Ezekiel, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on them and they will be clean. He causes us to be born again. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said this in his book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, which, by the way, that book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, is what I believe to me personally, is the greatest and most important book I have yet to read outside of the Bible. And you can get it for free, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. But he said this regarding conversion in that book. He said, to be the people of God without regeneration is as impossible to be the children of men without generation. Seeing that we are born God's enemies, we must be newborn His sons or else remain enemies still. You must be born again. As uh, one pastor was confronted by a lady and, and she asked him, what, why, Pastor, Pastor, why do you keep saying you must be born again? 
And he said, dear lady, because you must be born again. That's a, uh, unless you are born again, unless you are converted, you will no, by no means see the kingdom of God. And yet, that term as Nicodemus saw it, said, how can this happen? I can't, I can't do this. Yes, that's the point. You can't do it because you're sinful, you're depraved, you're an enemy of God, you're hostile and mind, you're doing evil deeds, you're alienated from the kingdom. God must do a work in your life. He must call you. He must elect you. He must draw you. As Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up. So our, the, the process, our relationship to Christ in the process of salvation is that we are foreknown, we are predestined, we are elected, we are called, and then regenerated, and then we are converted. As we are born again, we understand that God as if, in 2 Corinthians 5, as Paul says, that He removes the veil from our eyes. We see our sin. We see our sinfulness. We see our need for a Savior. We, we, we see the reality of this sin-cursed world and then we repent and we believe. But that repentance and faith cannot come unless we are born again. And all of these things happen in a moment. That yes, before the foundation of the world, He chose us and He foreknew us, but then in a moment, He causes us to be born again, then we repent and believe, and then we are justified and adopted into His kingdom. This is why Jesus, at the beginning of His ministry in Mark chapter 1, His preaching consisted of this. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel. And what was he saying as he proclaimed the gospel of God? He was saying this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That God came to save sinners. Not the righteous sinners. And then in Acts, the apostles were the same. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, talking about the, the, the report of Gentiles, and they, and they glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has rep granted repentance that leads to life. Paul says this as well in Romans chapter 2, that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. All glory goes to God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. At the end of the day, no one will boast in the sight of God. We are foreknown, we are predestined, we are elected, we are called, we are regenerated, we are converted, and then we're justified declared legally righteous because of what Christ has done and then adopted into His kingdom. Romans chapter 4 at the end and, and, and chapter 5, and, and you can turn there and see this, that 
Paul is using Abraham as he explains the gospel, as he explains what happens in salvation. He's using Abraham as an example, as a picture. And at the end of Romans chapter 4 and verse 22, he says this. He says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't Abraham himself, but his faith. As he displayed his faith um, later on in almost sacrificing his son. But he believed God when God gave his promise. And then Paul goes on to say this. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This term justification is a legal term. And we can picture it in legal language or in a legal analogy and illustration as if God being the righteous judge of the whole universe, which he is, and we being the guilty um, defendant or sinners, will be brought before his courtroom and will be judged, as the Bible says, at the great white throne judgment, all will be judged. But those in Christ will not be judged for our sins because Christ paid for our sins on our behalf. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24 That he paid the sin debt. And because he paid it, we cannot be condemned. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took that charge upon himself. He paid the penalty. He paid the fine for us. And therefore, we are justified in God's sight. But, but not only are we not guilty, but because Christ also obeyed the law perfectly, we are imputed with his righteousness. We are given his righteousness. We are considered justified because he paid the sin debt, but also justified because we meet that standard of righteousness because of Christ's righteousness on our behalf. We are legally declared righteous based on his substitutionary death and his perfect life, and then we are adopted into the family of God. And all of this process, and there's many, many more passages and details, and like I said, we'll spend all of eternity understanding the depth of our salvation in Christ. But all this process of foreknowledge, predestination, election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, the benefit of this, the benefit of understanding this, because not only is this in the Bible, and these are Bible words, and these are Bible doctrines, but for our lives here, not not just getting a big head full of theology, but the benefit for our lives in embracing the sovereignty of God in salvation is not only is it biblical, but the primary benefit is that when you understand that 
Your salvation had nothing to do with you, but everything to do with God's sovereign choice to display His mercy and grace upon you, then you can rest and find comfort in the fact that it cannot be undone. And that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And so, in these few verses... Paul shows our relationship to Christ prior to salvation as alienated, as enemies, as hostile mind, doing evil deeds. And then he shows our relationship to Christ in the process of salvation that, that's implied in the reconciliation in his body of flesh by his death. And then he shows us our relationship to Christ in the purpose of salvation, why he did it in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That there was a purpose for our salvation, not just to be nice to us, but to display His glory in and through us, to display His mercy, His forgiveness, His grace, His steadfast love. But more than that, to present us to the Father as a gift to Him. That Jesus Christ came to redeem a people for Himself and for the Father. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That He came down to gather a people to present those people to God as a gift to Him for His kingdom to show His work. But more than that, to redeem His creation. Because the creation fell. In Adam, we all fell. But not just, just us, not just humanity, but all of creation suffers under the weight of the curse. And so Christ came to present us to the Father, and then to redeem His creation, to redeem humanity, to make a new creation born in Him, to make a new humanity, to be holy and blameless like Him, to, to reverse the curse. And He comes for us, and He redeems us, and He causes us to be born again that we might be conformed to His image, as Romans chapter 8 says, and, and, and to make for Himself and for the Father a holy people and a kingdom of priests. And, and I, I love this verse, and I, I quote it often because it not only explains who we are in Christ, but it also explains what we are called to be and do as Christians. And that verse, that passage is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 it explains, Peter explains who we are in Christ, who we are as a church, what we are called to be, what we are called to do. And he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
these extremes of salvation, which Paul shows here to the Colossians. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There was a purpose. And God is, in a sense, a God of extremes in His own perfections, but also in His perfect work. It's showing um, because of our total depravity and our sinfulness it, that that gives that perfect background to display His perfect grace and mercy and kindness and love. And so Paul shows us in this passage that Christ, as the author and perfecter of our faith, He shows us our relationship to Christ prior to salvation, our relationship to Christ in the process of salvation, then our relationship to Christ in the purpose of salvation, and finally, our relationship to Christ in the proving of our salvation, the proving of our salvation in verse 23. He says this, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And at first sight, if we read this passage, we, we, could, we could get kind of uh, worried. Because he says, if indeed. Meaning that maybe it's possible that we weren't saved. Maybe it's possible that we could fall away. He's saying, no. If you are saved, you will continue. In a sense, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That those who are called in Christ, as, as other passages say, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And as John says in his epistle, First John, they went out from us because they were not really of us. I said earlier in the Sunday school hour that, that Jesus said there will be wheat and tares. And even as he, he uses that, um, that parable, that illustration of the angels, and, and he says, don't, don't take them down until the end of the age. Don't, don't pluck them out. At the end of the age, they will be divided up. And so there's a sense that, that we cannot with 100% accuracy say who is saved or who is not saved. Only God knows. And if you've been around the church long enough, you, you will be surprised at who falls away. You'll also be surprised at, at the people who you thought may not have been a true believer show they persevere in the faith and though they stumble and fall many times, they persevere until the end and show that their faith was true. So that, that is left up to the Holy Spirit to decide who is exactly in the kingdom and who is not. And that's why Paul says we are to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. It's on an individual basis. See, yes, we, we judge a tree by the fruit that it bears, but we don't really know until the end. And so Paul is showing that our relationship to Christ in the proving of salvation, that we prove our salvation first 
in, in proving the truth of what we believe, continuing in the faith. This is how we prove that we, we prove that what we believed is actually true. The, the, the truths about Jesus Christ and who He is and what He came to do and His nature, that He is truly God, He is truly man, that He really did die, that He really did establish a church, that everything He said is true. If we continue in the faith, we prove the truth of what we believe. We prove the truth of His work in us. But more than that... It, in improving our salvation, we, we prove the power of whom we believe as we're stable and steadfast. He says, if you continue in the faith, believing the truth, proving what you believed is true, and stable and steadfast, that we do not shift, we, we do not go astray, we prove his power of whom we believe. We prove His power to sustain us. We prove His power to sanctify us. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So who's doing the work? We are, and God is. Both. We're doing the work in Becoming holy, improving our salvation, and sanctifying um, or being sanctified. We work out our salvation. That's how we, we prove the power of whom we believe by being stable and steadfast, walking, continuing in the faith. And we prove His power to keep us, to secure us. But we, we also, improving. Uh, um, our salvation, we, we prove the, the validity, the validity of the message we heard. We, we don't shift from it. That, that this, this message is worth believing. This message is worth proclaiming. This message is worth suffering for. As Paul says, he, he, he not only shows our relationship to Christ in the proving of salvation, as he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of gospel, of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. But then he goes on and he says, it's almost like a testimony, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. as Almost as an example of his own life, that he has proved the validity of the message that he heard. He, proved, he, he has proved the power of whom he believed. He has proved the truth of what he believed. In believing this message, in proclaiming this message, in being willing to suffer for this message and to die for this message. He shows that his relationship to Christ in the proving of his salvation. Now, we have covered uh, many truths from the Bible concerning salvation. We've, we've covered our relationship to Christ prior to salvation, our relationship to Christ in the process of salvation from eternity past until the point at which we're saved, our relationship to Christ in the purpose of salvation, that He would present us holy and blameless as a gift to the Father to redeem His creation, and our relationship to Christ in the proving of salvation as we walk in the faith and we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel, that we, we center our lives and we live our lives 
in view of this hope, this objective hope that Jesus indeed came and died for sinners like us. But there are also many truths within the Bible concerning those who will not be saved. Truths concerning those who won't come to Christ for salvation. Truths concerning those who delay coming to Christ and seeking Him while He may be found, calling upon Him while He is near. And there are those two, uh, I guess those two which may seem opposing truths concerning the gospel and salvation, that salvation is totally a work of God. And yet, we there is a command, there is a call to repent and believe, that we are commanded, all peoples are commanded to repent and believe, to seek the Lord while He may be found, to call upon Him while He is near, to reach out for Him. Jesus says, come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And some may say, well, well, I, I can't come to Him unless the Father draws Me. But yet, the command is still to come. You're still commanded to come, and if you do come, it shows that God has done a work in you. J.C. Ryle said this concerning the truths of salvation. He says, hell is truth known too late. From our perspective, we don't know who will be saved or who will not be saved. and We can't determine who the elect are or who's going to be called or what. From our perspective as human beings, we're just called to preach the gospel, to proclaim repentance and belief, to call sinners to come to Christ to be saved, and we're called to believe it ourselves. And at the end, God will show who has believed, who He has called into His kingdom, who are really His. So the call and the command is to repent, to believe, to seek Him while He may be found. And if you have not sought Him, seek Him now. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this great salvation in Christ Jesus. That we who were once far off have been brought near through the blood of His cross and have been reconciled to You. And not only have we been saved from our own sins and reconciled to You, but You have bestowed upon us this honor of preaching this message of reconciliation to the world. So help us, Lord, in the strength and power of Your Spirit to take this message, to take this Gospel to the ends of the earth and to the people close to us. We thank You and we praise You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's close by singing 602, I have decided to follow Jesus. We'll stand and sing that first verse together. <clears throat>